Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today, we'll listen to Saladin Ahmed's presentation on science fiction and the Muslim American imagination at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Saladin was born in Detroit and raised in a working-class Arab-American enclave in Dearborn, Michigan. His first novel, Throne of the Crescent Moon, was a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, Crawford, Gamel, and British Fantasy Awards, and won the Locus Award for Best First Novel. Saladin's short stories have been translated into a half-dozen languages, and he's also written nonfiction for NPR Books, Salon, and The Escapist. He's currently writing a new series for Marvel Comics titled Black Bolt, due out in May 2017. Before we get into Saladin's session, we're going to talk to his friend and fellow 2016 festival speaker, Mallory Orberg, author of Text from Jane Eyre, co-founder of the defunct but still much-beloved website, The Toast, and now author of Slate's advice column, Dear Prudence. So where are we catching you today? Uh, You guys are catching me in my bedroom uh, with the door closed so that you don't hear the sounds of my dog in Oakland, California. So how did you and Saladin first meet? So part of what's funny about that is the Festival of Faith and Writing is actually where Saladin and I finally met in person. I don't know if it's like this for a lot of other writers at the festival, but I often like become really good friends with people, often other writers, um, through Twitter. Like we get to know one another's work. We make a lot of jokes. Turns out we watch a lot of the same stupid TV shows or whatever. And I like jump into their DMs. I never slide into DMs, by the way. I always leap feet first. And I'm just like, hi, I'm here. Can we be friends now? (laughs) So what drew you to his work? often when it comes to uh, sci-fi fantasy, the sort of mainstream, the kind of books that get, you know, written up a lot, the kind of books that win awards are often like very uh, overwhelmingly white. That's not to say that there's not amazing spec fic being done by like people of color and and women and gender minorities, but that the kind of like the big stuff that gets like held up is, is often, you know, funnily enough, kind of unimaginative. It's always goofy when like there's, fantasy or sci-fi properties that are set in this incredibly like alternative reality but like gender roles are kind of the same white males kind of dominate the story uh heterosexuality is the order of the day it's always a little like well that's weird that that would stay the same that doesn't make a lot of sense that's just a way in which the field can sometimes lack imagination um, and that's not saladin so what did you think of the festival was this your first time it was my first time. And sadly, I was not able to attend um, Saladin's session. So I'm actually really glad that you guys are recording this so that I can finally listen to it. Um, because I think mine was going on like almost simultaneously. Um, it was it was fabulous. I mean, it was an amazing time. I, I loved getting to be there. I got to meet some incredible people um, who I just loved immensely. And you know, I loved that it was the Festival of Faith and Writing and it wasn't like, and we're just going to be talking about the one faith. So it was great to have just the sort of like variety of, of people who were there. Um, and I got to eat a lot of fries with Saladin, which is awesome. He's very fun to get French fries with. If you, you know, are ever near where he is and he wants to get French fries with you, I highly recommend uh, going because he's <laughs> a lot of fun. 
Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us about Saladin's work today. I love the fact that you guys met at the Festival of Faith and Writing. That's super fun. Guys, thank you so much. And now here's Saladin Ahmed on science fiction and the Muslim American imagination at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing, introduced by Calvin College English professor Jennifer Williams. So I grew up on a pretty steady diet of science fiction and fantasy since I was, you know, this high or whatever. And part of that was because it was all over my house. My, um, my parents had this, you know, living room that has all the books on the walls lining. It was all science fiction. And then also because my dad writes science fiction fantasy and he's, he's published his trilogy and so I would go to these weird conferences and stuff with him. Um, Ray Bradbury came to my house for a party once, I'll just Ooh. say. <laughs> step back. So I'm pretty familiar with the genre. And so when I got um, your book to read, Thorn of the Crescent Moon, I'll van at it. I was kind of like, okay, let's see what you got. (laughs) And I must say, I was a little skeptical of the idea of how Like, is this going to be one of those books where you kind of metaphorically say, yeah, there's faith there? And I was so delighted and even surprised by how that is not the case. Um, And I was pretty much knocked over by the first sentence, even, of um, the novel. And what's so great about this is the novel has as much sword and sorcery as, as you want. Like, you'll get all that. You'll get your ghouls, your skin ghouls, your djinn, all this kind of stuff. But the thing that's so intriguing is that uh, questions about faith are so woven in together, it's almost like you don't notice it. It just feels so natural. Like, it really should be there. It's not decoration added onto the plot, but like, it is the plot. Um, So questions like, um, um, uh, why did God call me to this work when other people get to have such good lives? Or... Uh, why, um, God, why do, what do you want me to do with my life? Or, God, the thing that I most want is to be loved. Or I want security. Or the very thing I was so sure God called me to do, the only thing I ever wanted, I think I might, might have been wrong. I don't know my vocation anymore. And we can all, I think, deeply resonate with these kinds of questions. Um, And so, like I said, the thing that I love so much is how much sense it made that these questions were in there while the swords were flying and the incantations were happening and, you know, the big evil and the good and all that kind of stuff. And it really made me feel like you really can't separate the faith from the plot or the plot from the faith. They're, They're like natural companions, the way the story works out. And so before I quit, you know, babbling, I just wanted to share um, a favorite place of mine in the novel to show you what I mean about faith and plot um, being natural companions in Throne of the Crescent Moon. This is right at the beginning. So there's a guardsman, and we immediately are plunged into this terrible situation where he's being brutally tortured. Um, he's been forced to see other brutal murders and brutal tortures. And he's been in this box for nine days and is beginning to feel like himself slipping away. Uh, He doesn't know what to do anymore. He's absolutely terrified. And then on the second page, uh, he, 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 he thinks to himself, 
Though I walk a wilderness of ghouls and wicked gen, no fear, no fear can. And it gets filled out a little bit later for us at another crucial moment. Though I walk a wilderness of ghouls and wicked gin, no fear can cast its shadow on me. And it just feels so perfect. Um, it doesn't feel like, of course, though I walk through a world of ghouls. Like, it makes sense. Um, it doesn't seem um, um, like gimmicky rewriting of the Lord's Prayer. It just really feels right in that moment. So um, I will turn it over to you now. and. I'm looking forward to hearing the story, too, so. Thank, thank you. you. Right. Thank you so much. Um, gosh, Jennifer, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, it's, it's good to be here um, uh, in front of a different type of audience than I, I, I typically find myself. Most of the time um, when I'm doing public readings, I'm at a science fiction convention. So it's, you know, um, uh, a lot of guys in Klingon costumes and things, <laughs> things like this, right? So, which is, which is wonderful. Um, I'm going to try and stop bumping my mic. Um, but uh, it's interesting um, what you were saying about uh, the novel and about the, the place of faith in it and about you as a reader kind of um, finding it unobtrusive. And that's, that's, it's wonderful to be in a setting where, uh, where that might feel more natural to readers um, because uh, not a huge percentage, but a, a vocal percentage of the, of the readers of the novel in some reviews will say things like, why are these characters talking about God all the time? I, you know, because, um, because science fiction fandom is, is a, typically a fairly secular, there's significant um, um, communities of, of faith within, but overall uh, is, is a fairly secular, sometimes dogmatically secular community, right? And so uh, it's, it's been funny to see which readers have kind of... Um, been able to absorb that as a kind of natural part of the novel's setting, um, and uh, uh, which readers have kind of been uh, immediately hostile to it. Um, so, hi everybody. I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I'm Saladin. Uh, I am here to talk. Um, I think uh, when I was pressed to try and uh, give some sort of coherent title to my rambling <laughs> thoughts here. Uh, uh, I said something like fantasy, science fiction, and, and the Muslim American imagination. Um, it's kind of a, a grandiose title uh, for uh, me telling you a bit about myself and a bit about um, uh, what it means to me, because we can all only really speak for ourselves, um, what it means to me to be a Muslim American uh, writing science fiction and fantasy uh, in the 21st century, um, some of the connections that might uh, exist with the bigger themes of the festival here. Uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to actually read you a story. So I'm not going to ramble on terribly long uh, because I'd rather sort of illustrate to you what I do rather than talk about it. I guess the idea of Muslim American science fiction is um, I should start by telling you a bit about myself. Um, I uh, grew up just a, a couple hours east of here, uh, just outside Detroit in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, which is a, a significantly uh, Arab um, suburb uh, of Detroit, um, kind of working class community there. Um, my folks were born here, but um, uh, I grew up in a largely immigrant population there. And um, uh, for me, um, the stuff that I write has kind of emerged uh, naturally, I, I guess as for any writer, um, as a kind of synthesis of, of, 
of the things that, that make me. Um, and uh, um, for me, a huge part of that is the community that I grew up in. Um, hearing Arabic uh, just on the street, um, my own Arabic now stinks um, uh, because I've, you know, I haven't spoken it regularly for years, but um, uh, you know, hearing it and, and at least as a small child speaking it, um, the smells of, of spices in Lebanese cooking and Yemeni cooking, um, uh, the sorts of expressions that, um, that shape lives, right? Um, uh, inshallah is a very common expression in Arabic, right? Meaning God willing. And um, uh, what it means to exist in a community where that's a kind of constant, constantly slipping off the lips um, and, uh, and seeing the world in a way that uh, it's shaped, shaped by something greater than, than what you see in front of you, right? Um, is, uh, these are all kind of atypical influences, I think, for, um, for an American 21st century uh, fantasy or science fiction writer. Um, but they, they fused for me uh, pretty naturally with um, my kind of geekier elements, you know? Um, I, uh, so I grew up in Dearborn. Um, my father, when I was uh, quite young, was a, a factory worker. Um, and eventually uh, started a nonprofit with my great grandmother, um, uh, which was serving Arab immigrants uh, to the area. This is in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and uh, he was really immersed in the community. He gave me a very strong sense of kind of, of ethnic pride. He was not a particularly religious person himself, but um, uh, the Muslim and Arab identities in our community were so connected that um, although he was he was not necessarily a believer that's shifted a bit in, as he's gotten older but at the time he wasn't a believer but he it was important for him to take me to the mosque for instance and see what went on right so um, I, I I grew up in this community but my father was also um, uh, a nerd he was a Lord of the Rings Frank Herbert you know comic book nerd so um, so I grew up with uh, with tons of comics around I grew up uh, with The Hobbit, I grew up with Dune, um, uh, all those sorts of things. Uh, and then I, um, he was very happy, uh, unlike um, some of my more, um, uh, my friends who are, are Muslim who had more conservative parents, uh, my father was very happy to kind of introduce me to really every, uh, pretty much except G.I. Joe, which he wasn't really into because of the kind of military interventionist thing, right? But um, uh, other than that, you know, pretty much all Star Wars, all of this stuff, He-Man, all of this stuff that was uh, nominally uh, for kids, he was really into getting me toys for because I think he was, you know, he had this science fiction and, and fantasy nerd uh, side to him that, uh, that he was indulging by allowing me to indulge it. So these things sort of um, uh, synthesized for me um, pretty naturally. I mean, my, my biggest influences when I talk about, whenever I'm interviewed and people ask about what influenced you as a writer, um, Dungeons and Dragons was a massive influence to me, even more so than, than Tolkien um, or, um, or, say, Robert Howard, who wrote uh, the Conan stories. Um, you know, I didn't know that source material when I was eight years old and reading. I only knew the Dungeon Master's Guide, right, and uh, Monster Manual and things like that. Um, so uh, that kind of uh, pulpy, kind of handed down fantasy stuff, uh, Marvel comics, all of that stuff was, that was in almost in my DNA. I was reading it so early and so often and so 
so deeply, if one can read Marvel Comics uh, deeply, right? I, uh, I mean, you think about the ways that some people come to their scriptures and, and read again and again and again and find new meanings and new nuances. And, um, you know, uh, th- th- that, that was me with, like, Fantastic Four, right? <laughs> but, oh, oh, okay, ah, I see, right? Um, uh, and um, uh, I, you know, read those things till the covers fell off. Um, and at the same time, uh, I was uh, being raised in this immigrant community um, with uh, narratives both of kind of what was happening currently in the Middle East, right? Uh, uh, the population I grew up in uh, was not only a, an immigrant population, but a refugee population um, from southern Lebanon, uh, largely. And uh, there was a lot of a lot of pain in the community, a lot of trauma in the community, a lot of resentment. Um, and uh, those narratives were out there about kind of what was happening in the world. And also uh, the older stories. My great-grandmother was a great uh, collector of um, uh, sort of Arab lore. And uh, uh, it was very important for her, even if I didn't have the language, to impart these stories uh, to me. And so, you know, I grew up with um, the kind of uh, Arabized or original (laughs) version of of some of the Arabian Nights stories and some of the stories about things that the, the companions of uh, the Prophet Muhammad did and things like that. Uh, those were, were bedtime stories for me. Um, and I guess, you know, after I lay down and those stories percolated with the Dungeons and Dragons, with all that other stuff, um, you know, it, it seeped in. And, uh, and, and years later, uh, you know, I find myself uh, working on a, a fantasy novel and it was um, perhaps inevitable that um, it wasn't going to be a straightforward Tolkien-esque Western European fantasy, that um, the, the characters, um, the setting, uh, all those trappings were going to be um, uh, sort of inspired by things that were more immediately uh, important to me and influential on me. And so the analog in Throne of the Crescent Moon. Now, Throne of the Crescent Moon, my, my first novel, is set in a fantasy world. It's not set in our own history. But the fantasy world is very much uh, influenced by an analog for uh, the kind of medieval Islamic world. Um, and um, that was inevitably almost going to be my my uh, approach rather than a, a kind of Western European influenced uh, uh, fantasy world. Um, But I think that uh, the influence goes deeper than just the kind of setting um, or the the characters in that um, I think the values that uh, I tried to write into the novel and some of the questions that that Jennifer raised in her introduction are are absolutely um, explicitly um, uh, asked in the novel because those are questions that that, that I wrangle with, um, and uh, also there are questions um, that are present maybe in Arab culture and in Muslim culture. Questions of one's relationship to God, questions of how one you know uh, the word Islam of course means submission, right? Submission to God's will. So what does that mean though, right? What does that look like? There are a lot of people doing a lot of wonderful and horrible things who think they're submitting to God's will, right? And so how do we, how do we know? Um, uh, those sorts of questions uh, I saw present in my communities in a way that maybe they weren't present in mainstream secular American culture, right? Um, and so they, they too found themselves uh, uh, being expressed in the novel. The main character of the novel uh, is 
a 60-something, you know, kind of fat, grumpy old man, right? Um, and that, even that is very much a kind of um, expression of more traditional cultures and especially uh, Islamic cultures. For me, Arab culture, but this is certainly, I think, the case in, in other Islamic cultures, a kind of reverence for age and a reverence for wisdom, rather than being interested in the story of the, the plucky young teen hero who discovers his own powers and um, uh, you know, goes off and explores, uh, I was driven to consider the story of a man who, um, uh, there are plucky young teen heroes in this novel. If that's what you're looking for, we got it all, right? Um, but, uh, and there, there are certainly readers, especially younger readers, who've latched onto those, those younger characters. But at the center of the book is, is a man who, um, rather than wanting to go off and explore the world, wants to defend his home, right? Um, uh, a man who is, rather than kind of, um, still figuring out everything about the world is sort of fairly content, uh, has a, a sort of a grumpy but pious relationship with God and, um, uh, and um, really wants to um, defend what little he has left at the, near the end of his life rather than go out and, and, and explore the new, right? And, um, and so all of those sorts of uh, uh, choices were definitely influenced by, uh, by my faith as, as a Muslim, by my culture as an uh, Arab American. Um, and uh, they, I, I guess, I can't imagine having written another sort of novel, and I can't imagine writing other sorts of short stories than, than the ones that I write. And uh, um, I've been lucky enough that um, there's been a significant enough cross-section of, of folks, um, either people who are not traditionally genre readers or people who are and have been kind of looking for stories that are more inflected with a, a kind of faith or are looking for more diverse sorts of stories than have typically been told. Um, I, I've been lucky enough to find a, a pretty warm reception uh, in the field uh, doing this. Um, there are always going to be those people who uh, are hostile um, either to just the general idea of faith, or very specifically hostile to, to Muslims and hostile to Islam. Um, if I were to really talk honestly about what being a Muslim American science fiction and fantasy writer means, uh, a big part of what it means is fielding a great deal of hate, you know? And this is a, a particularly hostile time right now. Um, and I take it um, as part of my task to kind of try and counter some of that. but. Um, you can never, um, thinking you're going to save the world with your writing is a really dangerous and, and path, which almost inevitably leads to disappointment, right? So, um, so uh, you, you sort of take that part of your job is to, is to um, not only be influenced by the background, but uh, I guess, um, or influenced by, by where you've come from, but protect where you've come from and, and honor where you've come from when uh, it seems like a, a big chunk of the country is uh, is attacking it, right? Um, that's a lot of rambling. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is uh, read you guys an actual story that I, I think will illustrate, I hope, some of this uh, a bit more clearly than my my abstract babbling does. Um, okay, so a couple of notes about this story. Um, one is it's going to take a 20 odd minutes to read it. Um, I will do so in a stream. And if anyone like needs to use the bathroom or has children or something like that, I, I really don't get offended if you need to go do that. Um, uh, the uh, 
other thing that's a sort of warning before I give any sort of a context for the story is that um, the story's uh, uh, remarkably foul-mouthed. So uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, it, it's quite foul-mouthed. So um, I do, uh, particularly, you know, uh, in, a, in a context where, you know, uh, folks that may not jibe with some people's values, so if, um, if it's going to bug you, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's hard R, okay? The, just, in, just in the things people say, not so much in the things that happen in the story. Um, uh, despite that, <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's um, maybe my story that's most um, explicitly about faith. And um, uh, the setting is a kind of post-apocalyptic uh, world, a post-apocalyptic Middle East to be specific. We don't know a lot about what's happened, uh, but there has been a, a, a great war um, uh, that's used biological warfare, amongst other things, and there's a, a disease called the Green Devil, which has been going around, um, uh, which was spread, we don't know by whom. Um, and I think that's all you really need to know. The, oh, the last thing, um, you're going to hear me read some of these lines in a kind of very mock theatrical voice, and those lines, if you were reading this on the page, uh, appear set apart in italics. They're actually, uh, the main character that you're about to meet um, has retinal screens implanted. Um, uh, and so these are actual prompts that are appearing before him. Okay. This story is called The Faithful Soldier Prompted. <clears throat> if I die on this piece of shit road, Lubna's chances die with me. Ali leveled his shotgun at the growling tiger. In the name of God, who needs no credit rating, let me live. Even when he'd been a soldier, Ali hadn't been very religious. But facing death brought the old invocations to mind. The sway of culture, educated Lubna would have called it, if she were here, if she could speak. The creature stood still on the split cement, watching Ali. Nano-hanced tigers had been more or less wiped out in the great hunts before the global credit crusade, or so Ali had heard. I guess this is the shit end of more or less. More proof, as if he needed it, that traveling the old Cairo road on foot was as good as asking to die. He almost thought he could hear the creature's targeting system whir, but of course he couldn't not any more than the tiger could read the vestigial OS prompt that flashed across Ali's supposedly deactivated ret screens. God willing, faithful soldier, you will report for uniform inspection at 0500 hours. Ali ignored the out-of-date message, kept his gun trained on the creature. The tiger crouched to spring. Ali squeezed the trigger, shouted, God is greater than credit! The cry of a younger man, from the days when he'd let stupid causes use him, the days before he'd met Lubna. A sputtering spurt of shot sprayed the creature. The tiger roared, bled, and fled. For a moment, Ali just stood there panting. <sighs> Praise be to God, he finally said to no one in particular. I'm coming, beloved. I'm going to get you your serum, and then I'm coming home. A day later, Ali still walked the old Cairo road alone, the wind whipping stinging sand at him, making a mockery of his old army-issued sand mask. As he walked, he thought of home, of free Beirut and his humble house behind the jade and gray marble fountain. 
At home, a med bed hummed quietly, keeping Lubna alive, even though she lay dying from the green devil, which one side or the other's hover dustings had infected her with during the global credit crusade. At home, Lubna breathed shallowly, while Ali's ex-squadmate, Fat Man Farad, the only man in the world he still trusted, stood watch over her. Yet Ali had left on this madman's errand, left the woman who mattered more to him than anything on God's, on Earth's scorched surface. Ugh, sorry. Surum was her only hope, but Surum was devastatingly expensive, and Ali was broke. Every bit of money he had made working the hover docks or doing security for shops had gone to prepay days on Lubna's medbed, and there was less and less work to be had. He'd begun having dreams that made him wake up crying, dreams of shutting down Lubna's medbed, of killing himself. And then the first strange message had appeared behind his eyes. Like God alone knew how many vets, Ali's ostensibly inactive OS still garbled forth a glitchy old prompt from time to time. God willing, faithful soldier, you will pick up your new evolution kit after your debriefing today. God willing, faithful soldier, you will spend your leave time dinars wisely at Honest Majudis. But this new message had been unlike anything Ali had ever seen, blood freezingly current in its subject matter. God willing, faithful soldier, you will go to the charity yard of the Western Mosque in Old Cairo. She will live. Ali's attention snapped back to the present as the wind picked up and the air grew thick with sand. As storms went, it was mild, but it still meant he'd have to stop until it blew over. He reluctantly set up the rickety rig shelter that the fat man had lent him. He crawled into it and lay there alone with the wail of the wind, the stink of his own body, and his exhausted, sleepless thoughts. When the new prompt had appeared, Ali had feared he was losing his mind. More than one vet had lost theirs. More than one vet had sworn that their OS had told them to slaughter their family. Ali had convinced himself that his prompt was random, an illustration of the one in a trillion chance that such a message could somehow be produced by error. But it had repeated itself every night for a week. He told the fat man about it, expected the grizzled old shit talker to call him crazy, half wanted to be called crazy. But Fahrad had shrugged and said, had shrugged and said, Beloved, I've seen a few things in my time. God, who needs no credit rating, can do the impossible. I don't talk about this shit with just anyone, of course. Not these days, beloved. Religion. <clears throat> but maybe you should go. Things sure ain't gonna get any better here. And you know I'll watch over Lubna like my own daughter. So now, Ali found himself following a random, impossible promise. It was, easy, it was either this or wait for the medbed's inevitable shutdown sequence and watch Lubna die, her skin shriveling before his eyes, her eye whites turning light green. After a few hours, the storm died down. Ali packed up his rig shelter and set back to walking the old, ruined Cairo Road, chasing a digital dream. There was foot traffic on the road now, not just the occasional hover duster zipping by overhead. He was finally nearing the city. He had to hurry. If he was gone too long, Ali could count on the fat man to provide a few days of coverage for Lubna. But Fahrad was as poor as Ali. Time was short. Running out of time without knowing what I'm chasing. 
Ali blocked out his own mocking words. Ali blocked out the words his own mocking mind threw at him. He took a long sip from his canteen and quickened his pace. Eventually, the road crested a dune and old Cairo lay spread before him. The bustling hover dock of Nile River Station. The silvery spires of Al-Azhar 2.0. The massive moisture pits like aquamarine jewels against the city's sand-brown skin. Lumina had been here once on a university trip, Ali recalled. His thoughts went to her again, to his house behind the jade and gray marble fountain. But he herded them back to the here and now. Focus. Find the Western Mosque. The gate guards took his rifle and eyed him suspiciously, but they let him pass. As he made his way through the city, people pressed in on every side. Ali had always thought of himself as a city man. He laughed at various village bumpkins turned soldiers back when he'd been in the army. But old Cairo made him feel like a bumpkin. He'd never seen so many people, not even in the vibrant, free Beirut of his childhood. He blocked them out as best he could. He walked for two hours, asking directions of a smelly fruit seller and two different students. Finally, when dusk was dissipating into dark, he stood before the Western Mosque. It was old and looked it. The top half of the thick red minaret had long ago been blown away by some army that hadn't feared God. Ali passed through the high wall's open gate into the mosque's charity yard, which was curiously free of paupers. God willing, faithful soldier, you will remember to always travel with a squad mate when leaving the caravanserai. Peace and prosperity, brother. Can I help you? The brown, jowly man that had snuck up on Ali's flank was obviously one of the imams of the Western Mosque. His middle-aged face was furrowed in scrutiny. Ali stood there, unable to speak. He had made it to old Cairo, to the charity yard of the Western Mosque, as the prompt had said, and now... Ali didn't know what he had hoped to find. A vial of serum suspended in a pillar of light? The sky splitting and a great hand passing down cure money? He was exhausted. He'd faced sandstorms and a tiger to get here. Had nearly died beneath the rot-blackened claws of toxi ghouls. He'd traveled for two weeks, surviving on little food and an hour's sleep here and there. He started to wobble on his feet. Why had he come here? Lubna was going to die, and he wouldn't even be there to hold her. The imam stared at Ali, waiting for an explanation. Ali swallowed, his cracked throat burning. I, I, my OS, it, it told me, his knees started to buckle and he nearly collapsed. It told me to come here, from Freebay. No money. Had to walk. They were a madman's words, and Ali hardly believed they were coming from his own mouth. Truly. You walked all that way and lived to tell the tale. I didn't know such a thing was possible. The imam looked at Ali with concerned distaste and put a hand on his shoulder. Well, the charity yard is closing tonight for cleaning, but I suppose one foreign beggar won't get in the way too much. You can, see, you can sleep in safety here, brother, and we can talk about your OS tomorrow. Ali felt himself fading. He needed rest, food. Even a vet like him could only go on so long. He sank slowly to the ground and slept. In his sleep, he saw the bloody bodies of friends and children. He saw his squad mates slicing the ears off of dead men. He heard a girl cry as soldiers closed in around her. He woke screaming, as he had once done every night. His heart hammered. 
It had been a long time since he'd had dreams of the war. When they were first married, Lubna would soothe him, and they would step into the cool night air and sit by the jade and gray marble fountain. Eventually, the nightmares had faded. Her slender hand on the small of his back, night after night, this had saved his life. And now he would never see her again. He had abandoned her because he thought God was talking to him. Thinking of it, his eyes began to burn with tears. God willing, faithful soldier, you will deactivate the security scrambler on the wall before you. She will live. Ali sucked in a shocked breath and forgot his self-pity. His pulse racing, he scrambled to his feet. He looked across the dark yard at the green glowing instrument panel that was set into the the mosque's massive gate, but he did not move. God willing, faithful soldier, you will deactivate the security scrambler on the wall before you. She will live. The prompt flashed a second time across his ret screens. I've lost my mind. But even as he thought it, he walked toward the wall. Screen jacking had never been Ali's specialty. But from the inside interface, the gate security scrambler was simple enough to shut down. Anyone who'd done an army hitch or a security detail could do it. Ali's fingers danced over the screen, and a few seconds later, it was done. Then a chorus of angry shouts erupted, and an alarm system began droning away. Two men in black dashed out of the mosque and passed him, each carrying an ornate jewelry box. Thieves. By the time he decided to stop them, they had crossed the courtyard. He scrambled toward them, trying not to think about him being unarmed. Behind him, he heard the familiar clatter of weapons and body armor. Thanks for the help, cousin, one of the thieves shouted at Ali. Ali was near enough to smell their sweat when they each tapped their hover belts and jumped easily over the descrambled wall. Infiltrators waiting for their chance. They used me somehow. He panicked. What have I done? His stomach sank. They've been using my OS all along. How and why did they call him, of all people, all the way from Free Bay? He didn't know, and it didn't matter. I'm screwed. He had to get out of here. Somehow, he had to get back to Lubna. He turned to look toward the mosque and found himself staring down the barrel of the Jowli Imam's rifle. The holy man spit at Ali. Motherless scum. You know how much they've stolen? You helped them get out, huh? And your pals left you behind to take the fall? Well, don't worry. The police will catch them, too. You won't face execution alone. He kept the weapon trained on Ali's head. Ali knew a shooter when he saw one. This was not good. I I didn't, Ali started to say, but he knew it was useless. A squad of mosque guardsmen trotted up. They scowled almost jovially as they closed in. Ali didn't dare fight these men who could call on more men. He'd done enough security jobs himself to know they wouldn't listen to him, at least not until after they've beaten him. He tensed himself and took slaps and punches. He yelped and they raked his eyes for it. He threw up and they punched him for it. His groin burned from kicks and and he lost two teeth. Then Then he blacked out. He woke in a cell with four men in uniforms different from the mosque guards. Kyrene police? They gave him water. God willing, faithful soldier, you will report to QB7. Ali ignored the prompt. The men slapped him around half-heartedly and made jokes about his mother's sexual tastes. Again, he pushed down the angry fighter within him. If he got himself killed by these men, he would never see Libna again. They dragged him into the dingy office of their sheikh captain. The old man was scraggly and fat, but hard. A vet 
unless Ollie missed his guess. Tell me about your friends, the shake captain said. Ollie started to explain about being framed, but he found the words wouldn't stop. Something had been knocked loose within him these past few days. He talked and talked and told the old man the truth, all of the truth, about Lubna and the messages, about leaving free Beirut, about the Toxigouls and the tiger, the Western Mosque and the thieves. When he was done, he lowered his eyes, but he felt the old man glare at him for a few long, silent moments. Ali raised his gaze slowly and saw a sardonic smile spread across the Sheikh captain's face. A prompt. Half the guys with an OS still get him. What do they mean? Nothing. I got one that said I fucked your mother last night. Did she wake up pregnant? The men behind Ali chuckled. In the army, Ali had always hated the Kyrenes and their moronic mother jokes. Sometimes I don't even know where the words come from, the old man went on. Random old satellites squawking, some head hacker having a laugh. Who knows? And who gives a shit? I got one a couple weeks back. It told me, find some guy named Ali, who was supposed to tell me about great riches lying buried beneath a jade and gray marble fountain. <laughs> For a moment, Ali listened uncomprehendingly. Then he thought his heart would stop. He did everything he could to keep his face straight as the sheikh captain continued. Do you know how many fountains there are like that here in old Cairo? And how many sons of bitches named Ali? What's your name anyway, fool? My name, uh, my name is Farad, Sheikh Captain, and I, shut up, I was saying, I told my wife about this prompt and she says I should go around the city digging up fountains, as if I don't got enough to do here, he gestured vaguely at a pile of text cards on his desk. In the army, I told her, I got a prompt telling me about some pills that could make my dick twice as long. Did I waste my pay on them? No. The old man gave Ali an irritated look. You know, you and my wife, you two fucking mystics would like each other. Maybe you should go to her old broad's tea hour and tell her about your prompts from God. Maybe she'd even believe your donkey shit story about walking here from the north. The shake captain stood slowly, walked over to the wall, and pulled down an old-fashioned truncheon. But before the tea house, we have to take you back downstairs for a little while. Ali felt big, hard hands take hold of him, and he knew that this was it. He was half dead already. He couldn't survive an old Cairo-style interrogation. He would never see Lubna again. He had failed her, and she would die a death as horrible as anything he'd seen in the war. Faithful soldier, she will live. The prompt flashed past his ret screens, and he thought again of the sheikh captain's words about riches in the fountain. No. This was no head hacker's trick, no thieves scheme. He did not understand it, but God had spoken to him. He could not dishonor that. He had once served murderers and madmen who claimed to act in God's name. But Lubna, brilliant, loving Lubna, had shown him that this world could hold holiness. If Ali could not see her again, if he could not save her, he could at least face his death with faith. He made his voice as strong as he could, and he held his head high as he uttered the words that would seal his fate with these men. In the name of God, who needs no credit rating, Sheikh Captain, do what you must, but I am not lying. The Sheikh Captain's eyes widened and a twisted smile came to his lips. So that's it. 
in the name of God who needs no credit rating. In the name of your mother's pussy, you superstitious fool. The big men behind Ali grumbled their southern disgust at the fact of Ali's existence and started shoving him. He'd revealed himself with the old saying as a northerner, a free Beiruter, and he'd been in the losing side of the war. The old man cut them off with a hand gesture. He set down the truncheon, pulled at his dirty gray beard, and assumed a mock gravity. A genuine free Shiite anti-crediteer, the scourge of the global credit crusaders. <laughs> Hard times for your kind these days, even up north, I hear. The sheikh captain snorted, but there was something new in the man's voice, something almost human. Uh, you think you're a brave man, a martyr to show your true colors to me, hmm? Psst, you can stop stroking your own dick on that account. No one here gives a damn about those days anymore. Half of this city was on your side of things once. Truth be told, my fuckface fool of a little brother was once one of you. He kept fighting that war when everyone knew it was over. He's dead now. A fool, like I say. Me? I faced reality. Now look at me. The old man spread his arms as if his shabby office was a palace and his two goons were gorgeous wives. He sat on the edge of his desk and gave Ali another long look. You, though, you're stuck in the fanatical past, huh? You know, I believe this story about you following your OS is actually true. Not a robber, just an idiot. You're as pathetic as my brother was. A dream-chasing relic. You really walked down the OC road? Ali nodded but said nothing. A sympathetic flash lit the sheikh captain's eyes, but he quickly grimaced, as if the moment of fellow feeling caused him physical pain. Well, my men will call me soft, but what the fuck? You've had a rough enough trip down here, I suppose. I'll tell you what, we'll get you a corner on a hover cluster, okay? Those steerage flights are always half empty anyway. Go be with your f wife, asshole. Ali could not quite believe what he was hearing. Thank you. Thank you, Sheikh Captain. In the name of, in the name of your mother's hairy tits. Shut up. Take your worn old expression back to your falling apart city. Boys, get this butt-fucked foreigner out of my office. Give him a, a med patch, maybe. Some soup. I don't know. Don't mess him up too bad. The big men gave Ali a low-grade med patch with help, which helped. They fed him lentil soup and pita. They shoved him around again, a bit, but not enough to matter. When they were through, they hurled him into the steerage line at the old hover docks. Ali was tired and hurt and thirsty. Both his lips were split and his guts felt like jelly. But war had taught him how to hang on when there was a real chance of getting home. Riches buried beneath a jade and gray marble fountain. Cure money. Despair had weakened him, but he would find the strength to make it back to Lumna. He would watch as she woke, finally free of the disease. Faithful soldier, you will. The prompt cut off abruptly. Ali boarded the hover cluster and headed home to his beloved. Thanks. Special thanks to Saladin Ahmed. He is prolific on Twitter, and you can follow him at Saladin Ahmed. Special thanks also to Mallory Orberg. You can find her Dear Prudence advice columns on Slate.com. 
Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptein, Carolyn Meiskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing. 